Acts 7, beginning with verse 59 and reading through Acts 8, verse 4. As always, may we read together and let us read the word aloud. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Shall we pray? Our Father, this morning we, we turn our hearts to you. For the sake of our brother John, as he has asked that we would pray for his family at, at this time uh, that they mourn the death of his father. We would pray, Lord, for Mrs. Tullius and Father, just for her comfort and peace. And for the family members that are coming in from out of town, that you would guard them, guide them, and protect them to be here to comfort one another in this this time of loss. May you strengthen them, and may your presence be known mightily and powerfully among them through uh, these days. And we ask that, Lord, in Jesus' name. And we ask that you would bless and anoint us with your Holy Spirit now as we seek, Lord God, to learn and study and grow in your word. Lead us, guide us through it, Father. Teach us, affect us, challenge us, and change us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You all may be seated. I have a few questions to ask you. And I want you to consider these questions very personally, very seriously, and very carefully. Ponder them. Consider them. They're challenging questions. The first question is this. Does the world, and I define the world as that which is, of course, outside of the church or the body of Christ, but does the world see us at our best every day? Does the world see us at our best every day? Now, secondly, I want you to ponder this question. Does the world observe us when in the midst of struggles and trials, oftentimes not of our own making, but does the world observe us living out our very lives no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again? Think about the question. Does the world observe us when we are going through our trials and our struggles and our tribulations? Does it observe us living out our lives, not for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again? And then I want you to consider this third question. Are we able to say with conviction, as the world looks for chinks in our armor... Because that's what the world does when it looks at Christians. 
It's looking for things to criticize, things that are weaknesses that, that they could exploit toward us and to discourage us and to hurt us or, or to harm us in some way. But, but are we able to say with conviction as the world looks for chinks in our armor, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ask yourself, am I able to say that with conviction? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Now, it would not be hard for some of us to believe that the thoughts expressed in these questions were in fact, and if you were listening carefully, they were in fact seeds that had been planted deep into the soil of the mind and the heart of one Saul of Tarsus, on that very day that he gladly consented to the stoning death of the beatific table server Stephen. That Stephen who, who had shined with the face of an angel. And, and Saul uh, just gladly consenting that on that very day he was stamping not only his approval upon what had taken place, but he was stamping his complicity to crimes against deity. As Saul, now Paul the Apostle, would later recall, as he says to a crowd in Jerusalem in Acts 22, verse 17, he says, Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple that I was in a trance and saw him saying to me, Make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, they know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believe on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Stamping his complicity in this crime against deity. Saul of Tarsus. In verse 4, actually, of chapter 22 of the book of Acts, he says, I persecuted this way unto death. Unto death. But what Saul had, had gotten to observe firsthand on that day were believers in Jesus Christ. In particular, this one believer, Stephen, who looked unto God and they could see him uh, just with this radiance of the, of the presence of God and of Christ in his life, looking up to, to Jesus and seeing his Savior. And while he's even being stoned, speaking to God and speaking to the Lord, and then saying, Lord, do not hold this against them. That, that Paul is observing firsthand on that day, this believer, but standing for all the believers who were true believers in Jesus Christ, he was seeing them at their very best. He was seeing Stephen at his very best. And this is why I ask, does the world see us at our very best? It didn't matter, you see. It didn't matter whether they lived or died. This is what Paul is, this was what Saul of Tarsus was observing. It didn't matter whether they lived or died. They would do it all for the glory of the Lord. And so is it any wonder then that those early observations would be the impetus and influence of the Apostle Paul when writing to the churches? 
This is the whole point that I'm trying to make here. That as Paul is writing to the churches, this was ever present on his heart and ever present on his mind. He says in Romans 8, I'm sorry, Romans 14 verse 8, For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that He might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. But that verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord. What was He saying? He was saying exactly what He had seen on that day. Somebody who, who said, whether I live or die, I live unto God. And I live unto Christ. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Is that not the same impetus and same influence that it was upon his heart when, when in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21 he says to that church, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then to the Corinthian church in his second letter to them. 2 Corinthians 5 verses 14 and 15. And if you listen carefully, what I read is part of a question that I asked you earlier. But Paul says in verse 14, For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all. And notice that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Is it not a valid question to ask, does the world, when it observes us going through our trials, sees us living no longer for ourselves, but for him who died for us and rose again? And then lastly, not to say the only verses, but for, for our purposes today. When he writes to the churches in, in that area of Galatia, and, and he writes to the Galatians, and verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 20, one of my favorite verses of, of all of Scripture. Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. Is it not valid to ask the question? Can I say with conviction, when the world sees my life, can I say with conviction, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And that I, in the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. Not in myself and not in the world and not in anybody, but in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I want to tell you that there is power in these words. These are powerful words because they were words that were influenced by the Holy Spirit. They were inspired. They were God-breathed by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. But the power of these words, please understand, the power of these words was seen by the Apostle before he would ever commit them to parchment under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because he saw them in the very face of Stephen, that face of an angel, the face of one in the very presence of Almighty God. And this is what we can say is truly the magnitude of persecution. You see, this is what I've entitled this study, The Magnitude of Persecution. And I've chosen this title not so much to draw attention to the pain of persecution from some mundane or secular viewpoint, some common thing. If I, if I mention the magnitude of persecution, our first thought is the persecution. My focus, wants, uh, my focus is to be upon the word magnif uh, magnitude. The magnitude 
of persecution. Because it's my desire that the focus be on the magnitude of the life that is lived for Christ in spite of persecution, in spite of the testings of this life. The brightness, if you look up the definition of magnitude in, in, in the dictionary, you'll find that one of the definitions of it is that, that, that uh, magnitude is, is, is a measure of the brightness of a star. And so when we consider the brightness, the magnitude of a life lived to the glory of our Lord and Savior, just as magnitude is the measure of the brightness of a star, so it was with Stephen and so it should be with us. No matter what we go through in this life. No matter what kind of trials, no matter what kind of tribulations, no matter what kind of testings, even persecutions, that all they do is, is, is tear away at the layers of our own flesh, tear away at the layers of our own humanness, and allow the light of the glory of Christ to shine forth in our lives. We need to see the power of Paul's words. And we need to see in the power of Paul's words the dying and the living of, of Christians in the early church to know that if they could live and die unto Christ, then we can and should do it as well. If they could die for Christ and live unto Christ, then we can die and live unto Christ as well. Why? Because the very same Spirit that was given to them has been given to us. The very same Spirit. There is no lesser degree of Spirit given to us today than that was given on the day of Pentecost when the church received the Spirit of God. And so we can die and live unto Christ as well as they did. With that in mind, as we look at verse 1 of our text, it says, Now Saul was consenting to his death. A lot of what we want to look at today is, is, is focused upon this person named Saul of Tarsus. For he's mentioned not only at the end of chapter 7, but he's mentioned again here. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, and by the way, that little phrase, at that time, some of your modern translations may have it this way, but it's, it's really speaking of that particular day. At that time, at that moment, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now we know that persecution had begun because they had already started persecuting the apostles, but they hadn't killed them. Now they started killing the believers in Jesus Christ, as they did in Stephen. And so persecution arose against the church, which, is, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered, it says, through the regions of, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Now, getting our focus back on Saul, it's, it needs to be stated that as Saul was applauding the death of Stephen, because that is what the word consenting literally means, to applaud with pleasure. Saul applauded with pleasure the death of Stephen. But it needs to be stated that as he was doing this, he was in no way considering what they were doing as murder. It was not murder to him. It was justice. Because Paul was, was a zealous believer in the law. A zealous Jew. And what Stephen had done was the height of blasphemy to him. Though... In his ignorance, he didn't realize that everything that Stephen said was true. His eyes were blinded, you see. His eyes were blinded by his religion. His eyes were blinded by this religious fervor that was in his heart. He calls himself zealous many times. 
zealous for what he believed in. A burning passion for what he believed. Somewhat like those today who are in the fringes of Christianity, saying that they are going out and bombing abortion clinics and and shooting and murdering and assassinating abortion doctors uh, in the name of Christ. Something doesn't ring right there, does it? It isn't because that's not the heart of Jesus. But that's religious fervor. That's religious uh, zealotry, as it were. What we, what we know of Saul comes from Scripture. What we know of Saul comes from his very own words. Going back, if you will, to Acts 22 for just a moment. What we know of Saul is in his own words as he says, I'm indeed a Jew, he says in verse 3. I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous, notice, toward God as you all are today. Remember that he is not speaking as Saul of Tarsus here. He is speaking as Paul the Apostle. But he's giving his testimony. And it's testifying that when he as Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia had come to Jerusalem, he had come to be taught in the strictness of the law. We know that, uh, that Saul was a Roman citizen. But what is most significant is his testimony of being a promising young Pharisee. And he tells us this in his, in his own uh, uh, testimony in Galatians chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 3. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, being more exceedingly zealous for the tradition of my fathers, for traditions of my fathers. There's the word zealous again, you see. Zealous. Religious fervor, in this case. And more particularly, a blind religious fervor. The church in Philippi, he writes and tells them in Philippians 3, verse 4, and following, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, notice in verse 6, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Paul was one who believed that he tried with all of his heart and, 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 and tried and attempted in many ways and succeeded in many ways to have kept the law in his own heart, in his own mind. But twice in these passages... Paul mentions the persecution of the church and would almost seem as if Saul himself was responsible for all of this. Remember Acts 22 verse 4, he says, I persecuted this way unto death. We would, we would just have to believe that he was not just responsible, but he was, he was in fact the strength of that thought of the Sanhedrin. He was the Sanhedrin's vessel of bringing all of this about. And then we're told at that time a great persecution arose against the church which is at Jerusalem. Saul, a blameless in his mind and heart, zealous religious Jew, 
He was mentioned in chapter 7, verse 58, and twice in the first four verses of chapter 8 as we read today. Blinded by his zeal. He would later, as Paul the Apostle remarked to his son in the faith, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 and 13, he would say to him, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man. But notice he says, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Paul confesses his ignorance. You see, blindness, religious blindness in, in, this, in this type of, of, of passion and fervor blinds us to the truth. And he says, I, I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly. In unbelief. Here was a, one of the most learned men of all time saying, I was ignorant of God's Word. Though I was zealous for it. I, I mean, I was blameless about it. Concerning the law, man, I was blameless. But I was ignorant. How many of us have had to come to that in our day and time when we came to know Christ and we said, Lord, forgive us because I was ignorant. I thought I knew who you were. I thought I knew through my religion or through my religious efforts and my religious thoughts. But I just came to realize I just had blindness. I did not see you. And now I know you. But I'm thankful that you give mercy. Aren't you thankful today? that we obtain mercy even though we were ignorant in our unbelief. And Paul confesses two things. I was ignorant and I was an unbeliever. Here was a man who thought he was the best of all believers. But blind. Blind to his Messiah. Blind to Jesus. Blind to the truth. Blind to God's love. Blind to God's grace. And getting back into this person of Saul of Tarsus, he, he, here he was, consenting to this death, receiving the cloaks of those who had gathered stones to stone Stephen. He may have been too refined to stand there throwing stones, but he wasn't too refined to hold the coats of those who did it. Folks, we need to know that consenting to evil is as bad as committing evil. Consenting to evil is as bad as committing evil. If we are happy that people are sinning, then we are as much sinning as they are. If we are glad that they're doing what they're doing in the, in the midst of their sin, then we are consenting just as much and we are committing just as much that evil as, as they are. We get trapped, folks. Listen carefully. We get trapped by TV and movies and all kinds of things in the secular world. You know, there, there was a time when we had the heroes, you know, that were morally upright and, uh, you know, they, they were good guys. They wore the white hats. Now, the, the, all, of the, all of that has been, you know, kind of brushed over. We don't have the good moral, you know, Roy Rogers cowboy kind of guy, you know, Gene Autry and all of that. I come from a long time ago, so, you know, some of you guys are saying, who's that? But it was nice to see that they had morals. They, they did things right. Nowadays, you know, we, we look at people that are anti-heroes. You know, they, they, they come morally bankrupt and, 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 you know, sinful in their own ways. But they might do one good thing and we say, all right, you know. But they do it in a bad way. And then we say, oh, that was great. No, don't, no, it was evil. 
If sin was involved, it was evil. Why are we consenting to it? See, we have to be careful. We need to be discerning about what takes place in, in, in and around us, in our culture and in our society. But what Paul did, consenting the way that he did, he might as well have been throwing the stones. Because that was the religion of Cain. You remember Cain? This was the religion of Cain, who was too refined to slay a lamb, but not too refined to murder his brother Abel. The same attitude, the same heart in Saul of Tarsus. And when we see the mention there in verse 1 of Jerusalem, in verse 1 of chapter 8, it should remind us of verse 8 of chapter 1. I think it's pretty cool. 1 8 8 1. They're tied together. Chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1. Tied together. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It's, it's Jesus speaking to the disciples. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my wit- uh, witnesses to me. Where? In Jerusalem. And in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And if you remember back in chapter 5, the apostles have been accused of filling Jerusalem with their teachings. In Acts chapter 5 verse 28 saying, you know, it was a Sanhedrin that were threatening the apostles. And they said, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. You have filled Jerusalem. The whole city was, was knowing the doctrine of Jesus Christ because of the apostles. And this verse reminds us of a couple of things. First of all, it was now a good time for the gospel of Jesus Christ to move on to the next phase, to be spread from Jerusalem to all of Judea and Samaria. It was time. Why? Because Jerusalem was filled. But secondly, let's remember something. That the apostles were bold, courageous followers of Jesus Christ. They were bold enough to stand in the very face of the Sanhedrin and to proclaim to them Jesus Christ, the cross, and salvation through Jesus. They were that bold. So they were not cowards. That's the point. At the same time, they are not to be criticized by us, as some armchair theologians might observe, as being too slow to obey the Lord so that the Lord had to send persecution in 8.1 to get them moving in obeying 1.8. You see? Because there are people that say, you see, uh, evidently the apostles weren't wanting to get out of Jerusalem and so God had to bring persecution on them and, because they weren't obeying Him. No, that's not, the, that's not the case. They were bold proclaimers of Jesus Christ. The persecution came because it was going to come. Jesus told them it would come. It was going to happen. They were to be ready. And what this should remind us is that God uses anything and everything, whether it be trial, tribulation, or triumph, God uses everything and anything that touches our lives to accomplish His will and purposes. Anything. We're all familiar with what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, when he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day, for our light affliction. Now I've got to tell you, I, I wish... I wish I could understand what Paul's understanding of heavy affliction would be. Because he says light affliction. Have you ever heard of, of what Paul went through as, a, as an apostle of Jesus Christ? 
How he was beaten time and time again for his faith in Jesus. How he had been shipwrecked a few times. How he had, you know, had sleepless nights and, and just, you know, hungry days and, 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 and just going through all kinds of stuff and being just mistreated and, 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 and abused in, in so many different ways. And he says, that's just light affliction. You know why he says that? Listen, he says, for our light affliction, which is just for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God working through those afflictions, through those troubles, through those trials, through those persecutions, for a far more exceeding eternal weight of glory. And he says in verse 18, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things that are seen are temporary. They'll just come and go. But the things which are not seen are eternal. God working through everything. Now we are more familiar with what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, when he says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purposes. We know that all things work together for good. So it doesn't, you know, all is all things. It's not some, some things are, you know, or uh, most things. He says, we know that all things all means all. Good, bad, struggles, trials, pains, tragedies, <clears throat> things we don't understand. All things work together for good to those who love God. I think the most important question to ask dealing with this particular verse is, do you love God? Because if you love God, then you understand this. That's why you can say, and we know. If we don't love God, we can't know that. If we always complain and criticize God for, for letting things happen to us, why did you let this happen to me? Why did this happen? Why did, why did I struggle? Why did this person die? Why did these, you know, it, then we, we have to question, well, don't you love God? Because a person who loves God knows that all things work together for good. We may not understand it. God understands us. If we ask why with a, with a broken heart, he'll, he'll heal us. He may not ever answer us, but He'll heal us. But go back and think about all of those being persecuted in those days and times. Luke tells us that the believers were scattered, it says. But that's not a bad thing. Please understand. Luke says that they were scattered. He doesn't say that they fled. Fear causes people to flee. They were scattered. That's a big difference. Literally, they were distributed. Remember the, the parable that Jesus gave of the sower and the seed? When it talks about the sower and the seed, it talks about someone who goes out into a field and scatters seed. It's not so haphazardly as we might think, but is distributing. It's just a simple way of saying distributing, sowing the seed into soils. Well, these believers were being distributed and sown as seed into the world that Jesus came to save. We ought to be thankful for that. Why? Because we're, you know, you know 10,000 miles away from the epicenter of all things in, in that area of the world. And separated by some 2,000 years as when Jesus was here. And guess what? The Word of God has made its way to us. We're here today because someone preached the gospel of Jesus Christ to someone who preached it to someone else who preached it to us. And then, and then until it got to us. You see? That's the working of God. 
Not the fear of men. Not being fearful and being scattered out as if, you know, oh my goodness, we can't, we can't even say anything. Don't, don't say anything. Oh no. You know, that's fear. And, and lastly, on this point, nearly all the opposition and persecution against the church came from the Jews. And you have to consider how blind that the enemy made them, how blind Satan had, had, had made them and covered their eyes that they could not see the truth. Because every time that they tried to stamp out Christianity, every time they tried to stamp out the truth of Jesus Christ, every time they tried to stamp out the name of Jesus Christ, it only caused it to spread. All that Satan accomplished by this kind of violence was to scatter the glowing embers of the church's fire far and wide, causing new fires to spring up. It is happening today. It's been happening in communist China for many years. The suppression of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true gospel of Jesus Christ, to have an underground church, and the more they try to stamp it out, the more the church spreads. It happens in every country where there's great persecution today. That is why we need to pray for our country more than anything else, because there's too much freedom here. And even though we are given the opportunity to to praise God and to mention the name of Jesus Christ, as we do and as we came in great freedom, we ought to thank God for that. The fact is there are a lot of people working today to try to silence us. But hey, if they ever try to silence us, guess what? You can stamp on it. The more, the more they do in stamping us out, the more the Word of God is going out. And I don't know if you read the article in, in, in the Calvary Chapel magazine that we distributed not too long ago, that uh, Raul Reese, when he went back to Vietnam, that even in the military, so for those of you that are in the military, but they were having these outreaches to hundreds of Marines. And they were giving certain things to Marines about the love of Christ and that they were to hold on to Jesus. And, and that, that that's what was going to be their strength when they went into the field of battle. Folks, there are going to be people that are trying to silence that. But you know what? You can't silence the name of God and the name of Christ. Because the more you try to stamp it out, the more it's going to spread. I was saddened by that story. I was reading it in the paper the other day about the young girl at UTEP, uh, you know, that got burned, uh, third-degree burns from, from some steam that came up from the ground, I guess, on, on the property over there. She, uh, what the story said is she went over to try to stamp out the, uh, what she thought was maybe a cigarette because she saw smoke, and she, she went over there and stamped it. But evidently that, that caused the, you know, the, the, the burst of, of steam to come up and, and burn her, uh, gave her third-degree burns. And I... I'm careful to try to use this illustration, but, but that's, that's kind of the same thing, you see. Trying to stamp out something, but it got stronger. The more you try to stamp out Christianity, the stronger it gets. So this is where we see Saul. And we're really not done with Saul, because in verses 2 and 3 it says, "...and devout men and carried Stephen." To his burial. Let me explain something about that. Uh, the words to his burial in the original manuscript is, is really not there. It's only there to describe where they were carrying him. But literally it says, And devout men carried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. And it reminds me of how God carries every believer who dies into his presence. If you're familiar with the story of the rich man and Lazarus, that Jesus told. Both the rich man and Lazarus die. The rich man was buried. Lazarus was carried. It's just, it, it, these are just little reminders how God loves us, how precious 
is the death of his saints. And devout men carried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, because we're not done with Saul, as for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. At the end of verse 1, it, 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 and I don't want to forget this, but it mentions the fact that the apostles were, were the exception. You know, they were being scattered. You know, the, uh, the church was being scattered, but the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. And they would stay there for the time that God would want them to stay there. But nonetheless, they stayed and remained in Jerusalem, their post of danger being their post of duty. They, they remained for the devout men and women who would soon enough feel the hate-filled heat of the Pharisee Saul. But in the midst of that, Stephen was being carried to his burial place, more than likely by devout Jews who were deeply impressed by the witness of Stephen at his death and, and who probably considered his death a great injustice. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know this by the, the Jewish tradition of lamenting greatly over the dead. They carried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. The believers in Jesus Christ would have lamented, would have, would have, would have sorrowed, I should say, over his death. But they would have rejoiced knowing that Stephen would have been with his Lord. But the lament itself... If you really want to know the truth, the lament itself should have been for the nation of Israel. Their leaders had rejected and murdered their Messiah. They had rejected His messengers and were now killing them. And not soon after all of this would they as a nation be scattered as well, but not to evangelize the world. Instead, they would suffer God's chastisement for nearly 2,000 years until the Lord would regather them to their land of promise in the last days, as we see it happening right now. I tell you this, the nation of Israel is proof of God's word to be true. It is there now because God said it would be. It is God's truth. As for Saul, we're told that he made havoc of the church. He made havoc of the church. The Greek word for havoc is, is interesting. It's defined as meaning to outrage brutally, to maltreat, to insult us, to soil with filth. That's, that's a pretty strong statement. Because it was a word that was used in those days to describe the ravages of a wild animal. In particular, like a wild boar as it tore its prey. That's what that word was used for. And it gives us a, a pretty good indication of the very heart and mind of, of Saul at that time. Because there is some sense in saying that Saul became this mad in his actions against the church. And if we paid any attention whatsoever in the persecution of the church today in foreign lands, we realize that the treatment of believers is by no means any more humane. On the contrary, it is worse. I would challenge you and encourage you to go on, to, uh, on the internet and, and look up uh, Gospel for Asia website, gfa.org, and, and, and read the stories of what is taking place in India and in, in other countries all around India and in the Far East, uh, and I should say in Asia, and the, uh, the different areas of Asia that Gospel for Asia uh, ministers to. We are given time and time again uh, situations of, of great persecution against the church and against uh, our own brothers and sisters in Christ. And if we're not aware of it, we're not praying for them, then, then, then we, we, have, we can have no understanding of what we're, we're reading in the text today. I would encourage you to do that. And, and uh, you know, what the, the website about the martyrs, um, 
what is it called? Uh, uh, anyway, but there's there's various groups that that uh, they chronicle, you know, what's going on in the Church of Jesus Christ today and how many people are being uh, persecuted. But I challenge you to read these things and to pray for these people because they are our brothers and sisters in Christ. Prisons overflow today in many countries with those whose only crime is that they worship the one and true and living God and proclaim the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. That's their crime. We're sitting here today in the freedom to worship the name of Jesus and others are in prison because of the name of Jesus. And yet I wonder how much more free they are because they are in that cell. They've not lost one bit of faith in Christ, but trust that they're there for a good reason. Are we aware of how the early believers responded then to the persecution? Every indication in history and repeated down through the ages as books like Fox's Book of Martyrs have recorded show that they modeled the same quiet grace in living as Stephen exhibited in dying. They lived as Stephen died. With grace, with peace, with a sense of the presence of Almighty God. The treatment of all early believers is to remind us that we are to die daily to ourselves as we walk in service with the Lord. Our lives, you see, no longer belong to us. They belong to Jesus. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Did you notice that? Glorify God in your body and in your spirit. In what you do and in how you worship. In everything that you do it is to glorify the Lord. Why? Because you don't belong to yourself any longer. You belong to Him. Jesus made it clear when He said in Luke 9 verse 23 and following, He said to them all, If anyone desires to come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. How often? Daily. And follow Me. Take up his cross daily. In other words, everyone is to take up his own cross. That means you are to take up that cross that represents death and execution and die daily and follow Jesus Christ. And let me, I say this with all due respect to every, each and every person here, but it does not say to take up your cross weekly. It does not say to take up your cross monthly. It does not say to take up your cross only at Christmas and Easter. You understand what I'm saying? It says to take up his cross daily and follow Christ. This is a serious matter. Jesus wants us to live for him every day. Not just once when people see us at church every Sunday or Saturday or Wednesday, whenever. And he goes on to say, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man... If he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. The Lord Jesus bought us out of slavery to sin and death. And he has set us to be free spiritually. But we're no longer of this world. You see, that's part of understanding what it means to die daily. We're not part of this world anymore. We're strangers and foreigners on our way home, on our way to be with Christ. But along the way, we die daily in our discipleship. 
Along the way, we, we die daily as, as we commit our lives to the Lord, as we commit our businesses, as we commit our schoolwork, as we commit whatever it is, we commit it all to the Lord. Along the way, we bear our cross and the Lord, as the Lord bore His. Paul, you see, saw this as Saul of Tarsus in the early church. And, and there's one more lesson that Paul learned. I want to close with this. One more lesson that, that Paul learned through his observations. He says in Philippians chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, he says, I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul learned by his observations that no matter what state we're in, no matter what condition we're in, whether we are abounding or whether we are, are hungry and in need, we can do all things through Christ. You see, we sometimes misinterpret this verse because we say in verse 13, Oh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But we emphasize the wrong, we stress the wrong word in that sentence. We like to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When the emphasis should be, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I can be abased. If, I'm, if I am in need, I can go through that through Christ who strengthens me. And at the same time, I can abound through Christ who strengthens me. That's not so much of a blessing as it, as it is a warning. Because too often we can abound and forget Christ and think it's our strength. Folks, we need to understand what Paul is saying. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I'm in that state of, 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 of pain and hurt, I can get through it because Christ strengthens me. When I'm in, in, in a prosperous situation, I can do that through Christ who strengthens me because I could get off on tangents because of that wealth. Folks, I can do that through Christ. So he learned how to be a base and how to be abound, abounding. But in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and, uh, through 10, he says, And lest I should be exalted above measure, by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. By the way, it's to buffet me, not to buffet me. Since lunch is coming. Lest I be exalted above measure. He says, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, and listen to the words of the Lord speaking to the heart of Paul. He says, my grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and needs in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When I am weak, when I acknowledge my need for Christ, then His strength is my strength. And so what is the result of all this? Lastly, the magnitude of persecution is seen clearly in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. The magnitude of persecution was that they, went, they were scattered and went everywhere, not hiding, not 
changing their appearance, not you know, getting away from, you know, from the trouble. What did they do? They went and did exactly what got them in trouble in the first place. They preached Christ. They kept preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. Because that is what believers in Jesus Christ do. No matter what the climate is in the nation, the country, the town, the city, the state where you are. The persecution simply served to spread the message of Jesus Christ. They simply shared the good news of what Jesus had done in their lives. And we can do this simply because we die daily that the light of Christ's glory will shine alive in us. You see, the early church was seen by the world at their very best. When they were being persecuted, they were at their very best. When Stephen was being stoned, he was at his very best. He was saying to Paul and to everyone else, I no longer live for myself, but for him who died for me and rose again. He was saying to Paul and to Saul of Tarsus and all those around him who were stoning him, He was saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. With conviction, he said it in his death. Can we say it in our life? It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Do you know why we can say it? We can say it because I have been crucified with Christ. Now, the question is, have you been crucified with Christ? It is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. Is this the truth for you today? I hope and pray it is. Shall we pray?